morning, everybody. There are still more seats in here, so if you guys, if there's a seat next to you that's open, just everybody squeeze towards the middle, or if you have a bag on a chair, take the bag, put it in front of you, or put it in your lap, but there's still more people that need seats, so if there's an extra seat by you, scooze, scoot, not scooze, scoot towards the middle or scoot towards the side. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Uh, hey, it's 10.15. We're going to get started. Oh, you know what? I don't know where the other... Oh, there it is. Uh, it's hiding. Um, super grateful for you guys coming in today. My name is Mark Snee. I'm a pastor from the Central Valley here in Fresno, uh, down the hill. And um, I hope that as you're coming in today, you're not expecting to hear from someone who's arrived, like who, who gets it, who's done, you know all these uh, evangelism experiences and has just like a corner on the market. I am a fellow broken, sinful person that is recovering in Christ. I'm experiencing the grace of God daily as I express my need for him, as I just saturate my mind on the bread of life, the word of God. I need him just as much as anybody else. And I think coming into a room like this, there's an assumption that with this type of a topic, how do I answer the unbeliever? That those who are bold in their faith, uh, the apologetics masters out there, the um, you know the evangelists out there that are just so winsome and captivating, we we sometimes uh, elevate them to a level of like the equivalent of SEAL Team Six, like they are the elite, like special forces of Christians, and the rest of us just feel like, man, I can't do that, so I'm not even going to try. The problem with that is that the Bible doesn't, doesn't allow for any of us to disengage from this responsibility of sharing our faith, answering the unbeliever. It actually prioritizes for every Christian how to answer, how to engage. And so on a topic like this, I'm excited. And it, it's funny because um, this is probably one of the most terrifying realities of following Jesus. When I came to faith in Jesus, I was 19 years old, and I was terrified thinking, I'm actually gonna have to tell my friends and family and people about what's happened in my life, and they might reject me. They might make fun of me. They might hurt me for it. They might even kill me. And thankfully, like, nobody's killed me yet, but I have experienced different forms of opposition and tension. And so, this seminar is not to give you such confidence where you're like, dude, I won't experience any of that tension. It's ultimately my goal is to give you a few more tools in your arsenal so that you can feel this level of confidence as you're going out into the world. Whether it's your own unbelief or the unbelief of those around you, you get to deal with what does God say to address unbelief? What does God say in order to answer the unbeliever and how to do that with effectiveness? Cool? Um, so my goal in here is to end, um, do we have, let's see, if we want 10 minutes left, I need to be done by 10.35? Yes. All right, so my goal is to end by 10.35, to give about 10 minutes of time for those of you who just have like itching questions um, that you've uh, maybe always wanted to ask or whatever, uh, I'm just going to ask you to uh, ask it on the mic so everybody can hear you, um, and then we're going to do it that way. Uh, so that's the goal. So... Without further ado, our working definition of the term apologetics is this. Apologetics, which defining apologetics is to give a defense for the faith, to give a uh, level of evidence for why we believe what we believe. 
Apologetics is merely knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively, okay? Knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively, I would add, winsomely, with tact, with humility, and yet with a boldness of the Holy Spirit. If all of those things kind of work together to engage somebody that's really um, in a position of unbelief, in a position maybe even of hostility towards the things of God, the things of Jesus, man, those things uh, come in across a conversation, an interaction with a person that's in that type of a setting in their life is very disarming to a person like that. I've seen it over and over again. People that are very hostile, very agitated, very angry, all of a sudden when you answer the unbeliever with this tact and wisdom, this humility and, and yet boldness of the Holy Spirit, um, it's disengaging and it's uh, disarming and it's, it's uh, not, not disengaging, it's very engaging and it's very disarming at the same time. So the reason why we do apologetics is because the Bible commands us to do apologetics and the good news is that it tells us how to do it. The Christian view of the world or the worldview of a Christian is a biblical worldview. And the command to defend the Bible comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, the Bible commands us to do apologetics and it tells us how to do it. That's the good news today. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. That, there's our phrase right there, to make a defense is the Greek word apologia, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So what's the priority according to this verse? It seems like it's make a defense, right? The apologia. Is that the priority according to this verse? What is the priority? Sanctify Christ as Lord, right? Let's go. Sanctify Christ as Lord, what does that mean? To sanctify Christ as Lord is to set the Lord apart in your heart, in your mind. You know that he is Lord of all. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of all kings, of all presidents, of all nations. Jesus right now is on his throne. He exists in heaven as king of kings. According to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, all authority has been, past tense, given to him in heaven and on earth. Therefore, we are to make disciples, teaching people to obey everything he's commanded. And so part of that teaching is to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. Everything we do, everything we reason about is dictated by Christ's lordship. Because Jesus is Lord, we have knowledge about things, about reality. Now, we're called to make a defense and an important element of making a defense, according to this verse, that oftentimes my maybe highly confident, uh, maybe overly confident high school men in the room, um, not accusing you guys, but I know how I struggle with overconfidence as a high school student. I know that's a typical thing. We want to win arguments, especially as dudes. Like, man, I got these powerful arguments now. I can wield the sword of, of, of the word of God in, in, some, in some tactful ways. We're not looking to win an argument for an argument's sake. We're looking to win a soul for eternity's sake. Amen? 
We're looking to win people to know Jesus who has won us by his grace and love. And doing that is doing it effectively with gentleness and reverence or respect. We're looking at a person, not belittling them, not saying, I can't believe you believe that. It's, hey, get a load of what he believes. No, it's none of that. It's saying, look, I really appreciate you opening up, having an honest conversation. Why, why do you believe what you believe? What do you believe? That's where the next part comes up. Maybe we encounter objections or challenges to the Christian worldview. Maybe you've encountered some of these. I don't believe the Bible. How many of you have run into that conversation? Wasn't the Bible just made up to control people? God is just a fairy tale. Why would you believe in fairy tales? It's made up. I don't believe in God because I believe in science. This position of kind of like, I just believe in, science is actually synonymous with knowledge. I believe in knowledge. I believe in the ability to know things based on science. We live in a very um, enlightened age where we have a lot of confidence in the word science but apart from God, we can actually know nothing. That's the irony. The unbeliever and the believer both rely on the same God in order to know anything at all. Here's a, here's a pithy statement. God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. Now, I had to memorize that and re-listen to that from apologists that I appreciate and to understand what it actually meant. But as you unpack the significance of that statement, that God is the necessary precondition. He is the very foundation upon which we can be intelligible and know anything about any sort of subject matter at all. It's, it's said in this verse right here, Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Because God is light, God reveals things as they are, we get to see things as they are. There is no knowledge apart from God revealing truth and knowledge. In his light, we see light. Now, when a, an unbeliever comes to you and challenges you, uh, it's going to be very tempting to kind of take them at their word and say, oh man, they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe God exists. What do I do now? Or they're tempting me to just put the Bible aside so, so that I can't actually use the, 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 the word of God to articulate who we're talking about. Now, I want to show you through this section that their issue is not an issue of needing more evidence or more revelation. Their issue is an issue of suppressing the revelation that they've already been given. So when the non-Christian says to you, I don't believe God exists because there's not enough evidence, don't believe the lie. Don't take the bait. There's been hours that I've spent and wasted on trying to argue an unbeliever or an atheist into believing that there is a general God and walking away when they feel like, okay, maybe there is a general God. Walking away feeling like, man, I won. That's awesome. That's not a win because this section says that they already know God exists. Their issue is that they're suppressing that truth by their sin. And it's not they alone. It's all of us do this, okay? So this section, of word, uh, this section of God's word gives us universal insight into the condition of mankind. When we come across unbelievers, we don't need to sit there for hours and try to convince them that God exists. He's already made it evident to them. Look at the underlined phrases here to see what I mean. Verse 18, 
For God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. A question I'll ask a non-Christian or somebody that says they need more evidence is, what additional evidence do you need from the God who's already given you enough evidence to know that he exists? It's kind of a trick question. (laughs) If you caught it, then you realize that even if they start to answer that question, what additional evidence do I need in order to believe in the God who has already given me enough evidence to know that he exists? God's already given him enough evidence. So if they go on to answer the question, I think I just need this evidence and this evidence and this evidence, they haven't heard the question. Because this section reveals to us the condition of sinful humanity, which of which all of us, our participants, are actively engaged in rebellion against God. Now, for the Christian, we are redeemed. We are on a different trajectory. We are living a life of repentant faith in Jesus. We look different. There should be cause for non-Christians to ask us, man, why are you so filled with hope when people are making fun of you for walking the exact opposite way of culture? That should be a question that comes up. That's what First Peter addresses. But we're able to answer the unbeliever confidently knowing that they actually know that God exists. Okay, because God made it evident to them. Verse 19, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that, here's the reason, here's the purpose, so that they are without excuse. If if a non-Christian comes to you and says, man, I'm going to get to heaven if I get there, and I'm going to look at God and say, I just didn't know. There wasn't enough showing me that you existed. So uh, it's not fair if you send me to hell because I never believed based on the evidence. God says just the opposite. So we're engaging in worldview conflicts. Apologetics is exposing the suppression of truth. When you're suppressing something, do you want it to be known? No. So there's tension there. When you're pressing into something that the person really doesn't want to reveal about themselves, namely that they know God exists, it can get awkward. And here's where as Christians in Christian culture, it gets challenging because we have a temptation as Christians to believe and adhere to the 11th commandment. What is the 11th commandment? Thou shall be nice. The problem with the 11th commandment is that it's not real. It doesn't exist. And yet we live in a culture that seeks to make people adhere to being nice. And so the moment that you have tension in conversation, the moment that you're challenging a non-Christian to uh, evaluate the foolishness of their worldview or the insecurity of the ground that they're trying to build their life on, showing them by the light of God's word that they're actually standing on sinking sand trying to build their foundational house on something that won't sustain them. There's tension there, and that's okay. See, we're engaging in worldview conflicts, the Christian worldview or philosophy of life and the non-Christian worldview or unbelieving philosophy of life. Someone may say, I don't believe God exists or the Bible is a myth. Right here, we're kind of caught in a corner, okay? When When the unbeliever claims to not believe God exists, you have two options. The first option is, am I going to believe the unbeliever what he or she is saying, 
Or am I going to believe what God says about the unbeliever? Those are the two options. Many Christians are tempted to argue and reason with the unbeliever at their statement. When God has already told us, no, no, they're lying. They're suppressing the truth about me that I've already given them. That changes the dynamic of the conversation. And it doesn't give us the sense of arrogance to look at them and say, you liar, you know he exists. But it does give us some confidence. So, example, uh, a couple weeks ago, I'm talking with this atheist at his business um, uh, on the warehouse floor. And uh, I'm like, man, I'm a Christian. You know, is there anything I could pray for you about? And he says, well, I'm an atheist, so I don't even believe any of that. And I said, yeah, you know, it's crazy because um, the idea, like from the atheist perspective, is that time and chance acting on matter gives us the ability over, over years to have an intelligible conversation right now and understand the words that are coming out of each other's mouth. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And the dude looks at me and says, huh. Now, I don't know what was behind that, huh, but I can pretty much be confident that giving a defense for the faith in that setting caused him to think twice about his position. It caused him to look down maybe for a second, maybe a split second, and see that his ground is sinking sand that he's trying to build on. Now, we got to further converse, and I looked at him and said, look, and this is Side note, this is based on my understanding of Romans 1, John 3, 16 through 21. I know that he knows God exists. And as I'm talking to him, I look at him and say, man, our issue in life is not an issue of uh, having enough evidence to believe in God. Our issue is an issue of sin. In other words, we don't want to believe in God because we want to be God, because we love our sin. And he lets off another, huh, our goal in a lot of conversations is just to simply put a stone in their shoe, something that they'll leave with and they can't get rid of. You ever walk with a stone in your shoe? It's like, oh, I got to get rid of it. But a, a spiritual stone in the shoe doesn't leave, right? We get to plant seed, we get to water seed, and we get to entrust God to cause it to grow. Amen? So, there's another element working behind the scenes that gives us incredible confidence. His name is the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 8, Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus is telling his disciples there's coming a day. They didn't get it at this point of Jesus' ministry. It's before he went to the cross, before he rose, before he gave the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. They're filled with the Spirit of God who dwells in us as believers now. As we tell people the truth about who Jesus is, we get to trust that the Holy Spirit is doing work invisibly in their life. I was talking with a guy recently. As I'm laying out the gospel, I'm pointing him to our need for Jesus, to repent and trust Jesus, that Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, that his blood shed for our sins to be forgiven. That's what it cost Jesus in order to bring us back into a relationship with the Father so that we could be secure forever. And that through repentant faith in Jesus, we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus saying, yes, Lord, I follow you. That's what it means to be a Christian. This guy in his 40s looks at me and goes, ugh. And he, he leans up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what does that grunt mean? Is, that, is he going to kill me? Is he going to 
Is he going to, what is he going to do? And he looks up at me with a smile and he says, man, the things in my life seem to be orchestrating in such a way where it's like the things that you're telling me, I want, I want to try that. I want to get baptized. I want to try that out. And I'm like, well, I'm thinking, you don't just try it out, but we'll get to that later. I'm just so encouraged because in the rare times that I see the Holy Spirit do work, that was one of them. Jesus says, like the wind comes from where, where it comes from. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. We don't see the wind, but we see its effects. John 3, he tells us that. I got to see the effects of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a guy as I'm sharing the truth of the gospel with him. Romans 1.16 is our confidence. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So as I get people to talk about these things, my ultimate goal is to bring them to the gospel, to Jesus, that they might be saved. That's the goal of apologetics. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You're either wise or you're a fool. Those are the two categories of people based on Scripture. Wisdom comes by fearing the Lord, recognizing God is who he says he is. And I either live in submission to him and gain knowledge about how to live in a way that makes sense of life and his design, or I reject God and try to become my own God and experience the negative and devastating consequences as a result. Those are the two categories. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, we have knowledge about anything at all. Jesus is the source of our knowledge and our faith. Many of us come across points in time, though, in our faith where we struggle with doubts, right? For me, it was six months after becoming a Christian at the age of 20. I'm like, is this thing a myth? Are people in Christianity just duped? Like, did I fall for, I was at a secular university that was just really challenging the biblical worldview, and I had no answers, and I was scared to ask people around me their view on it because I didn't want to, in my mind, mess with their faith and make them doubt. Maybe you're in a similar situation. There's an article in Christianity Today in 2019 that says this, over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Sadly, Less than half of of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. Yet these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. So their doubts, as they explored those doubts and asked honest questions about their doubts and didn't suppress their doubts, created stronger faith maturity. That's awesome. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. And maybe you're coming in here racked with guilt or feeling unworthy because you feel like if I express the struggles that I've been dealing with, maybe people will look down on me. I'm here to tell you, no. There is no temptation that is common to man, uh, that is not um, uncommon to all of us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. So God's faithful. Even if your temptation is to walk away from the faith because of unexpressed doubts or fears about your faith, you're in a good spot here. This is ultimately our hope. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When we talk about the word of Christ, we're talking about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And if we're not in the book, 
and we're wondering why we're struggling with our faith, it should be pretty, pretty evident according to this verse, right? So I said that I wanted to open it up with uh, some time for Q&A. I know we walked through a lot of stuff. Um, does anybody have any questions regarding this topic? Any at all? All right, we got this. Uh, I guess I'll run back there. There you go. Thanks for asking the first question. Uh, so. Yeah, it's on. Okay. Um, so um, basically what, what my question is, is so I have a friend that I've known makes my whole life, and he, he he believes in more like that there are several gods than just one god. And so I'm not really, I don't really know how to change the mind. He always believes it. His dad believes it too. So yeah. it's just like I'm not exactly sure how to change his mind. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, what do we do with people that believe in multiple gods, that, um, that there are multiple paths to God, that there are so many religions out there, that who's to say that Christianity is true at the exclusion of other faiths, right? That's kind of your question. Like, what do you say to him? Um, here's the confidence that comes from the Word of God. Psalm 96.5 says, um, the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The gods of the nations are idols. The word for idol is non-existent things. So the idea that there's multiple gods out there that people run to, to bow down to, that's nothing new. The revelation of God is that that's going to happen and polytheism is nothing new, but there's only one God according to his revelation. And the proof is so clearly evident through the word of God, the prophecy fulfillment of Jesus alone, what he did in uh, rising from the grave. No other claimed God has ever come close to the mountain of evidence that we have that the scriptures give us. All other claims about other gods and other ways to God, according to God, are non-existent. That's why there's urgency in this conversation, right? That's why it matters that said friend, you don't stay there in your unbelief about Jesus. You need to trust him because he's the only way to God, right? So it matters. Yeah, good question. Any other questions? Over here, do we, uh, oh, right there in the neighbor over there. And I'm going to be sticking around. I think there's a hand raised over there. I didn't, I saw it real quick. Yeah, right there. Um, I'll be sticking around afterwards, too. If you don't get your question answered, um, I'd love to spend some time talking with you. Yeah. Okay, so this is a question specifically of, like, a situation that I was put in. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend, and I love her dearly, uh, but the way that she believes in Christianity is a little bit different. She doesn't believe that there is any such thing as hell. She believes that God can only be good, that he can do no bad. And so one day I had sat down and I was like, hey, why do you believe this? Like, can you explain to me, like, you know, why you believe this? And she started saying things and I, I didn't exactly know how to respond. She was like, well, if you were put in that situation, would you do it? Would you send someone to hell if you were given the decision? Or if God's all good and God's merciful, why would he send somebody to hell? And so that's, I was wondering, yeah. how would you answer that? Great question. If God is good, then why does hell exist? Well, your friend, by your example, came up with qualities and revelation of who God is, but not the fullness of, of who he is as he's revealed himself. So God is good. He is uh, loving and merciful. Yes and amen. But how does he demonstrate his mercy? 
Mercy means not giving people the justice that their sins deserve. How does he demonstrate that? Does he just demonstrate that to any, to everyone? No, according to his revelation, not only is he merciful and loving, but he's also just. He's a good judge. And good judges must punish guilty criminals, otherwise they're not good. A murdering thief who comes to a judge and says, hey, I think that you're a loving judge and you should let me go because it wouldn't be loving for you to send me to prison forever, um, so you should let me go. If that judge said, okay, yeah, I don't want to be accused of being mean, and he lets him go, how does the family feel whose loved one was murdered at his hands? That's not loving or just, right? Hell is a prison sentence against an eternal God. So oftentimes it'll be said, how can, how can hell be forever? In other words, the punishment doesn't seem to match the crime, right? If I sin against God in time, then why am I being punished forever? Well, say you punch me in the face, you might go to jail for the night. Hopefully you won't do that. Say you punch a police officer in the face, you might go to jail for a little bit longer. Say you punch the president of the United States in the face, you're going to go to jail for decades, Say you punch the holy God and creator of the universe in the face, and metaphorically, we do that every time we sin against him. Every lie we tell, everything we've stolen, every sexual immoral thought, let alone action, is against the God who created us for honoring him and glorifying him. Anytime we do that, we're sinning against an eternally valuable creator. And so that justice demands eternal separation unless we we turn to Christ in faith, right? Good question. Yeah. Over here, we got a hand raised. We got a couple of hands raised. So, uh, yes, over there on the side, on the side wall. Um, and we have about two minutes left. Okay. I, what does that mean? Ten minutes? Oh, ten. We got ten minutes. Okay, we're good. Yeah. Oh, then Mike's off. Can you share another instance? Oh, we got one minute. Okay. Or interaction that you've had with a non-believer where you really saw like the spirit work in them? One instance where I really saw the spirit working in the person that I talked to? Yes, like in a direct interaction. Um, most recent was the example that I gave of the guy that like let out an audible like God's at work in me and I can't explain what's going on. Like this is my interpretation of what was going on with him. He wanted to get baptized because he understood who Jesus was. And that's a beautiful expression of belief and, and, and a transformation that's going on by the Holy Spirit. Um, there's other times like people in tears, like recognizing, oh my gosh, I do know that I, I've sinned. I need, I need forgiveness. I know that. That's pretty powerful, but that happens not as frequently. Okay, we got one minute, uh, and we got a lot of questions. Do we have any questions up here towards the front? Maybe right here. Sandy, you got it. Um, I just had a question, like, when you were in college, like, how did you, um, I guess, deal with, like, the doubts that you had, like, about Christianity? Like, yes. was there, like, somebody that you reached out to, or, like... That is a great question, and I'm so glad that you asked that, because that will end us on where I wanted to go. Um, so, in college, uh, the things that actually helped me the most was reading resources like The Case for Christ a journalist's personal investigation into the claims of Jesus through the research historically to see whether or not they were true. The student edition is probably more attainable. The first version is pretty heady, um, but it's great. 
the one that I really got a ton out of was um, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. That helped solidify my weakened faith in ways that were just instrumental in my faith journey. There's another one called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek that really challenges unbelief from an atheistic worldview that's also fantastic. If you guys want resources and uh, attainable ways to uh, share the gospel effectively and uh, quickly, go to livingwaters.com. It's a really quick and easy, easily accessible resource that will help you to understand how to share the faith with whoever. All right? Thank you guys so much for coming. Appreciate your time.